0: Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie
1: and recharge your soul.
2: Hello and welcome to Magnified with Matt Cooper, a podcast series in association with MG Motor Ireland, in which... I try to spend more time with really interesting people who've done really interesting things than is possible on my daily radio show and to get into the issues and themes which are really important to our lives and to our futures. And that's why today's interview is with two women who run a social enterprise called Food Cloud. This is a really, really interesting business which takes waste food and supplies it to charities using technology to do so they'd explain it a lot lot better as you hear the interview but you'll also perhaps come across one of the most pressing topics of our time food waste and the environmental damage that is caused and the addition to our carbon emissions caused by the production and then non-use of food Two very interesting women, Isolt Ward and also Yvonne O'Brien are our guests on today's edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. Okay, Isolt and even thank you very much for being with us. Before we talk about food cloud, I actually want to talk about food waste. And I want to start not necessarily where your expertise is, but food waste in the home, because... We're all now concerned about rising food prices and at the moment there's an enormous amount of waste with the food we have purchased that comes into everybody's kitchen anyway. So if prices are going to be going up dramatically between now and year end, how much of an incentive is there to actually, for people in their homes use their food properly to save money?
1: Yeah, well the EPA tell us that we waste about 700 euro worth of food every year, the average Irish household. So obviously if prices are going to go up, that is going to go up unless we do change our practices. So I think in terms of you know thinking about food waste, we often think about it's a shame to waste that soggy carrot at the bottom of the fridge, but we don't really think about the environmental impacts of food waste. So that I suppose a big um, change in mindset around the impact of waste and food is not just—it's not just a waste of money, but it's also a waste of all the resources that have gone into it. Um, And so, if we can change that, and, and I suppose the cost of living crisis probably provides an opportunity for us to look a bit you know deeper about the money we're spending so there's an opportunity within in the cost of living crisis to start to look at what we're wasting
2: but could it be that for many people it's not the environmental concerns that will motivate them that way to necessarily gets them is through the impact on their wallet
0: Yes, and I'd hope so, because at the end of the day, we need to tackle the problem of food waste from an environmental point of view. Um, But if the motivation for people to do that is financial, that's fine. You're still ultimately reducing food waste at the end of the day. And the scale of the problem of food waste in terms of the environmental impact is something that I don't know how many people are really aware of. Uh, Almost 10 percent of greenhouse gas emissions are a result of food that we waste,
2: of all the greenhouse gas emissions, ten percent—that's even more than aviation. I think only aviation has about three percent, and, and we 2%. keep hearing about having to change it.
0: Exactly. So when you consider that food waste is four to five times a bigger carbon emission emitter than aviation, and yet we um, hear a lot about needing to reduce how much we fly. Food waste should be a much um, more prominent part of the discussions we're having in terms of reducing our own personal carbon impact. And not only can you have a big impact on the environment, you can
1: also save money at the this-
2: how that's much the of the food plan. that's produced annually globally, as reckoned reckon, is wasted, as in not consumed?
1: So, you know, the, his, the figure we had was 30%, but a new report came out this year, which Tesco and WWF did, and it's actually higher now. So it's 40% is the latest stats. Sorry, so 40%, 40% of, of food? all
2: food produced ends up not being consumed, which means being wasted.
1: Yeah, so to put that in context, um, the UN are saying that it's land the size of China, Mongolia and Kazakhstan all combined together to grow food that's never actually eaten every year. So it's a huge, huge problem. um, And it's one that we can take action on, but it's a massive problem.
0: And it raises serious moral questions when you consider that there are so many people that don't actually have enough food to eat there's over 800 million people globally who are food insecure and even in ireland there's one in 11 so on one hand you've all of this food going to waste it's creating all of these environmental challenges and then there are people who can't access enough food and um, so it really it is a problem that should have a greater prominence and should have a greater focus in terms of it's
2: absolutely shocking it. i wonder how many people actually are aware of that as to how much Food is simply not consumed after it's after it's grown or made
1: yeah it's it, and it's a hard one to i suppose get the, the numbers are so big it's hard to actually you know consider that but if you consider how long our supply chains are you know there's an there is the opportunity or the issue of waste at every single step of the supply chain from farm then you've got transport you've got processing right through to the home and then there's some wasted in the home so you know there is there's loss and waste at every step and that all combines together so 40 percent is massive it's
2: and then come back to the home, how much of the of that 40% actually comes in the home? Because I'd imagine it's probably a small amount. And it always drives me mad when things like, say, for example, you might have an avocado which comes from Mexico and it ro- goes rotten in the bowl and ends up being thrown out rather than been eaten, or a kiwi from New Zealand. I mean, it's not just the waste of the actual item that you've bought yourself in the shop, it's the fact that it has had so much environmental damage been caused in the journey to get to your kitchen.
1: Yeah, and you might as well enjoy it if it's if it's gone to that much uh, work, you know. But I think the the major thing is that uh you know if this food is being produced it's just the best thing it can that can happen it is for it to be consumed within the human human supply chain so like there is obviously lots of issues within the food system that need to be addressed but you know one of them that you can do in the home is make sure that you enjoy it you know and you you eat it and you enjoy it and you don't let it go to waste and it's you know the the solution to this problem is actually delicious you know and you can do it three times a day and it's (laughs) very tangible so you know save the avocado and the kiwi and and you know it is there is a practical thing that people can do in their homes
2: and this will bring us to food cloud in a second but just even in the home and i think this is allied to what you do with your supermarket businesses that you work with is the best before date on packaging i mean how much food actually probably ends up not being used thrown out because people are slavishly adhering to a best before date when the food is still actually still perfectly edible
0: Yeah, it can be very confusing for people because there are so many different ways that dates and guidelines are presented on packaging and, you know, we don't always fully understand what they mean. Best before date shows that food is... Better before the date, but not necessarily worse afterwards. It's a quality guideline and doesn't relate to food safety. So it's perfectly safe to consume food um, most of the time after that. And we've done work with the Food Safety Authority in Ireland on this as well to help The community organisations that we work with have guidelines as well and the businesses, of course, that donate. So really there is an opportunity for people to use their own senses um, when it comes to food. Smell and look and feel will often give you a much better indication of whether food is safe. Um, and good to consume rather than the best before date that you might see on it.
2: But also are people too hung up on how food actually looks? That again, it could be perfectly edible, perfectly tasty, but that we've allowed ourselves to be perhaps far too much dictated by the idea of how something looks.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably most prominent as well when it comes to vegetables. Um, You know, so we do, we are accustomed now to seeing, you know, class one vegetables on the shelves in the supermarket. So then when you you actually see the grow your own or when you see maybe the class two vegetables they're a little bit different they might take a little bit of extra time to chop or whatever but we've become a little bit desensitized to that so that we're constantly looking for the class one vegetables rather than acknowledging that they all taste the same and that they can be just cut up the same way and they taste the same ultimately but that would be an example of where the are you know where the visual appearance of food is is causing the most food waste. Fruit and veg would be a big one there.
2: Recently, I was at a UCC food conference, which sustainability was the main theme. And it was all about packaging, such as using cardboard instead of plastics, all things that are really worthwhile. But listening to this, would that suggest that the food waste rather than the packaging is actually a far more serious environmental issue?
1: Yeah, it's complex because if you reduce packaging, um, you can increase food waste. So there is, uh, you know, especially around transportation, the, you know, for meat products, like the plastics are very effective at extending the life of the product. So you, if you remove that, there are unintended consequences. So, you know, the industry, the packaging industry, the food industry all have to work really closely together to make sure there aren't unintended consequences of, of reducing the environmental impact of one practice which would be packaging and then potentially increasing it on food waste so uh you know you that that is a challenge and there isn't an easy solution to it so you know like the vacuum-packed meat that extends the life for a long time of of a of a steak for example so they you know unfortunately when it comes to environmental issues there isn't an easy solution and you have to work together to look at what's the best option. So, yeah, I think there's a, the environmental impact of food waste would sometimes trump the impact of reducing the packaging. So you'd have to make a call and it would be specific to the product. But like there, there does need to be a reduction of plastic, but keeping the food waste issue in mind. Where they do come together is this uh, concept of a circular economy and we
0: have to stop thinking of our systems as linear so that you know we produce consume dispose um, and we are hearing a lot more about the idea of the circular economy whether it's coming from companies, from innovation, from government um, and it really is this idea that you know we live in a circular system and the same thing for packaging we need to be able to reuse and recycle packaging um, and not dispose of it at the end of the day and similarly to food as well, you know we should be doing our best to keep food within the human food supply chain and if not humans, animals if not composting but I think ultimately with both packaging and food, we need to stop thinking of waste as the solution.
2: Let's talk about Food Cloud, which is your business, which your social entrepreneurs, I think it would be a fair way to describe you. The business is nearly a decade old at this stage, not, not for profit business. Tell us a little bit about how you set it up and what it does.
0: Yeah, so Food Cloud is focused on tackling the problems of food waste and food insecurity by redistributing good edible surplus food from the food industry to the charity sector. We have two solutions, Uh, one is a technology platform that enables retailers um, or food service to connect directly to local charities, so where the quantities of surplus food are uh, smaller, um, more perishable, so they need to be used or consumed very quickly. It works very well for the charity to be able to go directly to the business that's donating. And then our other solution is our three warehouses. So we have a hub in Dublin, one in Cork and one in Galway and they allow larger volumes of surplus food to be um, collected or delivered from across the food supply chain, so that could be at a farm level, it could be in a distribution centre, manufacturing, they can deliver it to our warehouses um, store it and then we'll deliver it out in more manageable quantities for our networks, of char- to our network of charities so the two solutions together mean that whether it's retail down or up the supply chain as far as farm, there should be a solution to redistribute food um, in Ireland, and then our technology is also used by food redistribution charities and businesses in the UK, um, and more recently in Slovakia and the Czech Republic as well.
2: So, tell us a little bit about the technology you've developed. Is this proprietary technology, or are we able to get it from somewhere else?
0: It is. So, we have a de- dedicated team of um, engineers and um, people working in our organization on the platform. Um, and it is a bespoke solution that we've developed over the last number of years, working very closely with um, food businesses and community organisations to make sure that it's as easy as possible for anyone to donate food.
2: And does it work off an app or do you have to go on the internet? What way does it work?
0: So there is an app, um, but we also integrate with uh, businesses systems to make sure that the process is as kind of streamlined and efficient as possible uh, for anyone who wants to donate food. Um, so you can access it as well um, online. So really in terms of engaging with the system, whether you're a business or a charity, we have to make it and we aim to make it as absolutely easy as possible. Uh, everybody's very busy in the nonprofit profit sector um, and also in the commercial in food industry um so it's really important that it's as seamless as possible to donate food
1: so for example if you're like in a tesco store and you're a store manager um you can use your scanner you know where you see them going around the stores with their scanner now they have a donate uh button on the scanner and that automatically sends information to our system and that sends an alert out to the charity on the app. So say if you're here in Rathmines, the store will post, the charity will accept and they'll go directly to the store. So the, then the technology platforms allows for full traceability. So we would know, you know, on Monday night on this date, this was donated from Rathmines to the charity and then the charity goes and accepts it. And then other businesses that mightn't be integrated would have an app which they would upload the details on the app. So it really depends on what works best for the, the business. G-
2: give me an example, say, of particular products. Is it when they, we spoke earlier about best before date or best by date so would it be the situation that somebody's going around scanning they see something is about to go out of date rather than putting a reduced price sticker on it they put it on the system and then a charity that is also one of your clients do they go and collect it
1: yeah exactly yeah so say like just take a tesco store Um, They'd have their reduced to clear section anyway. And then at like at six o'clock in the evening, they'll know pretty much what's going to be left. So they'll upload details of what's available onto the platform. The charity will click accept and the charity in that case would generally arrive at the store between 7.30 and 8.30 and pick it up. So you could have bought the product at seven. And it would be donated at 7.30. So it means that um, the stores are, you know, it's embedded in their existing processes already. So it's just making sure that anything that's really good, that they can't sell the next day for whatever reason. It could be that best before date. It could be there might be a little bit of damage. It could be there would be, you know, excess stock at a store level. So they would just make sure that they'd upload that onto the platform and the charity would pick that up directly.
2: How did you persuade Tesco to get involved? Because they would probably be your big name client, are they?
1: Yeah, yeah. so they were the first um, to come on board back in uh, October 2013 in Tesco and Talbot Street. So they took a punt on the concept. So they had food waste as one of their three strategic goals um, back then um, and so we approached to ask them would they be willing and interested to trial this with us. We had seen it work in other countries but at that stage we were it was a, a, a Student college project essentially. Um, so they said, Look, give it a try in one store and see how it goes. So we had a really good store manager in Tesco on Talbot Street um, and he started using it, really liked it. We expanded to another 10 stores um, in quite a short period of time in 2013. And then they said, You know what, this is actually very much aligned with what we're doing strategically around food waste. So asked us, Would we expand nationwide? So that was, and so for every Tesco store, then we built a community of um, charities around that store so that you'd be able to, I suppose, essentially have a marketplace for the surplus product that's available in the stores. Um, and then, you know, Tesco did, uh, you know, want that solution in other markets, hence the growth into other markets as well. And then other retailers came on board quickly after that.
2: So how many other countries are you doing it in the present?
1: Um, so we're in Ireland, UK, Czech Republic and Slovakia.
0: Um, yeah, and it has been, I think... One of the impacts we realised early on, um, and one of the benefits that Tesco would have also seen early on beyond just tackling food waste, was the positive impact that this food can have in communities, and the benefits of connecting businesses um, directly to local community organisations and charities, um, through these connections that are founded on shared food. You're also creating, you know, relationships that can have an increasing impact, and the where you know we often say we're privileged to see the work of these community organizations and the brilliant opportunities they can create for their communities using surplus food whether it's reducing their own running costs so that they can then invest in additional services that they're providing a lot of the organizations are like community centers so they don't you know just provide food they actually provide a range of services whether it's training helping people get into a employment like sit-in meals elderly and um, support in the community a lot of different kind of education when you offer food as part of those services it creates such a higher level of engagement it'll bring people in the door that might not otherwise have come and you know on one side tackling food waste as we've discussed is such an important problem from an environmental food but we also have to remember the power of food and how it cuts across all cultures. It connects communities, it brings people together. So we're not only wasting something and creating this environmental damage, we're losing opportunities to bring people together and solve really social problems. And I think, you know, from we got to see this at the very beginning, uh, went through those first few donations. um, And so did um, Tesco and the store manager that we were working with, speaking to the charities that were coming every week and picking up the food and learning more about what they were doing with it and the impact.
2: And have other supermarkets come on board after Tesco?
1: Yeah, so we have, um, you know, all the major retailers in Ireland have, are on board now and donating to the system. And then there's a network of about 600 charities. So that many? 600 charities from the Inishowen Peninsula to, I was actually down in Cork at the weekend and my second cousin was telling me that Bandon is very active in it. Um, so Bandon's Men's Shed, for example. Um, so there's... Uh, and then within the so on the charity side, there's about 600 active charities, and on the donor side, then you've got the likes of Tesco, Lidl, Aldi, Musgrave Marketplace done. So you know they're all looking for solutions. Um, to engage with their communities and to reduce waste so our job is to try and make it as easy as possible to do that and to try and manage as much as we can to reduce the barriers to donating good food so on both sides making it easy for the stores and making it easy for the charities and then the magic happens in the store where we actually don't you know get to see it but you know those connections at a community level are made then and they and they're Uh, opportunities beyond that are massive, but it's kind of our core bit is trying to make that process as easy as possible.
2: This started as a college project. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So uh, I had been working in London for a couple of years in banking um, and had seen uh, a lot of food sharing initiatives in the UK. So it was like 2012, like, you know, pretty recessionary times. And there was a lot of really interesting food sharing things happening. And I came back to Dublin to do a masters in environmental science, and Iselt was doing her undergrad. Um, so we met at a social enterprise um, event where we were talking about social enterprises and how students could g- get involved in that. So myself and Iselt met there, and we were talking about the idea of food sharing activities, and we we it basically started from there. Really, we'd seen similar stuff happening in the UK and internationally but very little in terms of food sharing was happening in Ireland so you know there was lots of iterations of what we were going to do um, but ultimately we saw a guy in Chicago was doing this online map where you could see businesses that want to donate in charities and we we started with the donation from Glasnevin Farmers Market in the June bank holiday weekend of 2012 and got the contracts and everything in place and got the donation from Glasnevin to Don Bosco Youth Services and thought you know if this is one saturday night and one market and this food is really good quality can you imagine what it's like across the country tonight so we decided that to scale it you'd need to do you'd need to have a technology platform and you'd need to make it more scalable so it really started from there and we just kept working at it and i suppose the big break did come when tesco came on board
2: because that does strike me without the technology platform you wouldn't be able to do this would you
1: No, it would be um,
0: a huge logistical challenge, borderline impossible, I would say. You know, the food... The the solution that we have with the warehouses is a well-established solution internationally. You know, the first food redistribution organisation using warehousing and logistics was set up in the US in the 60s. We are a very proud member of a European network of food redistribution organisations where 27 European countries are part of, and that was established in the 80s. So the concept of food redistribution isn't new, but... A lot of food that becomes surplus is highly perishable and in small quantities. But as we've already said, like the food is very valuable and it's food we could have bought in a supermarket a few minutes before it becomes surplus. If you had to rely on warehousing and logistics to collect that food and drop it to charities at certain times um, and with the uncertainty and the variability in surplus... The cost and the logistics and the challenge of doing that would outweigh the ability to actually rescue the food and benefit from it. So what technology does um, is speeds up the you know speeds up the process and connects the charity directly to the supermarket so you don't need all of this work in the middle um and that really has unlocked a new supply of surplus food for charities for example our uk partner Fairshare have 20 warehouses um across the uk that they run in partnership with other charities and they had been redistributing food since they were set up in the 80s and after using our technology for two years 35% of their food was then coming from stores and through our technology. So that's a huge increase in the space of two years for a very well-established national charity in terms of the volume of food they were distributing. And that's the difference that technology can make. It can really accelerate the impact that we're having
2: To date, I've concentrated on the likes of supermarkets, but it does strike me now, there must be lots of other potential sources for food, as in restaurants, coffee shops, small convenience stores. Are they all getting involved as well?
1: Uh, well, we they are, um, and to a certain extent, and there's an, another couple of organisations that are working in Ireland um, that are working more specifically with restaurants and small cafes. Um, Too Good To Go is one app, um, and Olio is another app where it's more consumer facing. Sometimes it is cha- challenging if you have, you know, a very small cafe with a couple of scones and a couple of muffins and some sandwiches to, for a charity to travel, you know, any distance to collect a small volume whereas what's coming from the retailers is more easy to use and larger volume so it makes it worth their while so the the type of food is important so we ha- we we do predominantly work with retailers and now we're trying to figure out the best kind of food service organizations that we can work with as well but the the stuff the food that would come from restaurants for example has a different um you know if it's hot if it's been cooked before all of that kind of stuff is a little bit more challenging for charities so i suppose very early days we when we spoke to the charities and said well what kind of food do you need and what kind of food do you want and they said it's the stuff that we would be buying in the supermarkets this is the most valuable for us but it is great to see other solutions coming on board that can address that issue because it does it, like food is wasted at every you know at every stage
0: yeah a good example if we started doing trials with kfc um in the uk with further as well so in that scenario authorities are able to access chicken um and collect it on a weekly basis they freeze it down and then they're able to donate it um so that's an that's an example of trying out a different type of food business that can donate
2: now as we're talking something strikes me that if, when you're putting all of this together there are costs involved because there are costs involved in your staff, there are costs involved in your technology. Where do you get your revenues from to actually cover these costs?
0: Great question. Um, yeah, so we are established as a social enterprise, and the way our funding model works, uh, most simply, is about fifty percent of our income comes from um, the delivery of services. So. The retailers that, um, or food businesses that use our technology pay an annual fee per outlet that donates food. That contributes towards our cost. We also run services um, on behalf of the government. So we run uh, an EU food aid programme. We run community employment schemes. Um, And these different avenues allow us to generate uh, sustainable income streams um, through revenue. And that does allow us to cover about 50% of our costs. But we do also have to cover 50% of our costs through corporate partnerships, um, through fundraising, through philanthropy. And um, that's actually, in the last two years in particular, become increasingly important. Um, We used to have a higher percentage of our costs covered with revenue. But in the last two years, since COVID, uh, we've seen enormous growth. So, uh, for example, our warehouses have almost doubled in terms of the volume of food that they're redistributing since 2019, um, because of the disruptions that we've seen across supply chains and the volumes of food coming in, but also the demand for food in our communities and the additional needs that our charities and community groups have really been stepping up to address and really provide that additional support and that's now sustained because of the cost of living crisis over half of our charities have said they're already feeling the impact of that in terms of the demand for their services so whilst you know we're always working hard to make sure that we've got a high percentage of sustainable income covering the cost of the services um, we are our own costs are increasing the well, I was just about to say increasing. to you it, it
2: just strikes me that you are going to face particularly in your warehouses increased costs for keeping food fresh lighting and heating chilling whatever needs to be done like that so your demand is likely to go up as well from charities where people are going to be looking for help and assistance and at the same time those donors that you have might be under increased financial pressure themselves might not want to give you as much
0: yeah it's a challenge, but that's, you know, we, we as you said, we've been at this almost 10 years. We're not, uh, we know there are going to be challenges and there are always going to be challenges uh, in what we do. But what's really important is that by 2030, we have to have food waste uh, per capita. It's in the Sustainable Development Goals. We need to achieve zero hunger. This is a decade where we need to achieve so much progress towards tackling the climate crisis, that we will continue to work really hard. We've been a brilliant team. We've over 71 people working for us. We've got people working from the two and CE schemes to community employment schemes. We've got volunteers. We've got brilliant partners. Um, and we have a lot of partners who recognise the need for us to accelerate the action that we're taking to tackle food waste and food insecurity. So there will continue to be challenges, There will funding is definitely a big challenge for us, especially uh, following the growth of the last few years, following the pressures that we're all experiencing in terms of cost, and also the recognition that we need to accelerate the impact that we're having uh, over the next few years all of those things combined do create a very challenging environment but we also know that that doesn't matter that that can't hold us back that we will continue to have to grow the impact that we're having and hope that more and more partners will come on board you know a positive stat for us was um although we experienced extraordinary growth in 2020 because of the supply chain disruptions in terms of volume of food, We had more unique businesses donating food to us on a weekly basis um, at the start of this year than ever before. So to continue to have more partners coming on board, more food businesses coming on board, uh, wanting to donate food, wanting to tackle food waste and support their communities, following extraordinary growth for us is something that we're really proud on. And we just have to keep seeing more and more people and more and more businesses getting engaged in solving this problem and prioritizing it.
2: When most people think of businesses, they think of entities that are run to make a profit Mm. and to reward shareholders. And you clearly have to run this as a business, but that isn't your end objective. So what difference does that make? How difficult or better do you think does it make it for you in running the organisation?
1: Yeah, so... You know, the the motivation here is really on having a contribution to reducing food waste. Um, And the benefit of being not-for-profit is that, you know, we're not working on quarterly results. We're not working on like a five-year exit strategy. You know, we're fully committed to working towards solving the problem. And that means that you can take a longer-term view. You can do things that might drive your impact. And then you're looking at impact and cost at the same time um, and then you're also I suppose have the opportunities to innovate as well a little bit differently than you would if you're com- if you're completely focused on cost and a longer term view for example um, we have one innovative project that we're working on that we're hoping to grow into the future which is we have our first product which is cloudy apple juice for a couple of years we were working with an or- a grassroots organization called falling fruit and they were going around Dublin um, gleaning apples from disused orchards across the the county, so the likes of UCD, the British Embassy, Rusborough House, all these fabulous locations with these disused orchards.
2: Disused, these are people probably going slogging apples, aren't they, (laughs) as we used to call it (laughs) Yeah!
1: (laughs) So slogging apples, and we, we were getting them into the hubs for about two or three years, and they're the heritage Irish apples, so they're not like the ones we see in the shop. Yeah. So for a charity as well, they're not the ones they would be used to. So we could move on a couple of boxes, but we were struggling a little bit to to make sure that we could rescue all of those apples so um, about two so we kept going and we we're like there's something in this there's something in this and about two or three years in we started juicing the apples with a company down in Tipperary and now we've extended the life of the apples for a year and a half and now we have our first product which is apple juice and that can be redistributed out of the charities as juice you've got your first product that can be used to showcase what we're doing. And I suppose the thing is, is that if you were a for-profit entity, sometimes you'd have to cut off earlier, you know, then you've actually proven that there's a solution. Whereas we were able to just keep working on it um, and come up with the product now that we've, you know, we can, we're hoping to expand that. We got a grant from the Department of Ag to work to expand but sorry, that. Sorry,
2: that, that product, is that product going to be sold as a retail product or is it something that you use as a product that can be sent to the charities? for no cost to them? How is it going to work?
1: It's a mixture actually. So we some of the apple juice will go to the charities that can use it and then we actually are starting to sell it to recover the costs of the juicing process in Airfield and in Grow HQ down in Waterford. So it's our first time to do a consumer-facing um, product that will also highlight you know, on the label, the work of Food Cloud, the work of Falling Fruit um, and to, I suppose, get people thinking about food in a different way. So... That's kind of where innovation comes from and, and as a nonprofit, I think you can spend more time um, looking at problems in the longer term and, and taking the time to find a really good solution to it.
2: But you have directors as well. I mean how do they force you to look at things maybe from a business point of view given that some of them have backgrounds in business?
1: Yeah so we've a great board of directors um, and they're all volunt- voluntary and so we're and we have the governance code within the charity sector as well. So Uh, we basically would have the same standards for running a business in terms of governance as any for-profit and then you've got another layer of responsibility which is as a registered charity we have another layer of governance on top of that. So um, we, I suppose in terms of governance we're really lucky to have a great finance and governance team as well that we've developed over time. So we're reporting to the board on a monthly basis and then have your, you know, uh, every six weeks we have board meetings. So it's the same structures as a for-profit entity it's just when you're considering your performance you're looking at impact and um, you know your financial position at the same time. I think people don't realize that there
0: are probably more similarities um, than there are differences in running the organization because ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, we have a core team. We need to be a great place to work for that team. We compete on the same market in terms of hiring people and looking for new talent. The problems that we're solving are very complicated. We need to constantly innovate and we need to make sure that our solutions are sustainable in the long term. We need to make sure that we've got enough people that are deriving value from what from the products and services that we deliver um, so that we continue to get support and get new partnerships and drive the impact. Um, So there is a lot of overlap and a lot of crossover. We face a lot of the same challenges, but it is, um, I think it is true. The big difference is that we are looking at two metrics at the same time, you know, our financial sustainability and the impact that we can deliver.
2: Tell me about the impact that you reckon you're having. I mean, how many, can you quantify how many people you think you have helped over the last decade that you do know on a daily basis?
0: Yes, so um, now on any week across Ireland, UK, Czech Republic and Slovakia, we're redistributing the equivalent of about one million meals um since we started in two thousand and thirteen later in two thousand and thirteen, over a hundred and fifty million meals have been rescued and redistributed to community groups through our technology solution and also through our warehousing. Um, solution as well in Ireland so we're incredibly proud that we've managed to see so much um, so much more growth in our impact and a lot of 50% of that 150 was in the last two years which shows how much we grew as a result of the pandemic and the supply chain disruptions there Um, but we also acknowledge the fact that you know this is only the tip of the iceberg.
2: Yeah how difficult was the pandemic for Not just actually sourcing, but also making sure that it would get to the people who needed it. Because you've been speaking a lot about community centres where charities might actually use others' food kitchens or use food as a support for the conversations that might be going on. When a lot of these venues were closed, then what happened?
1: Yeah, so... The COVID-19 for us um, meant massive disruption on the food inside. So, for example, every time there was a hospitality shutdown, there was a massive spike in the amount of surplus that came in through our warehouses. But at the same time, at the retail level, you know, with runs on the shop, the the amount of food at the retail level would have gone down. And that's on the supply side. And then on the charity side, organisations had to completely pivot. So, you know, an elderly service which I was having, you know, lunch clubs on a Friday, all of a sudden wanted to stay connected with their members, but had to get out, so get the food out. So a lot of them pivoted from, you know, catering services, you know, in a centre to have to do a Meals on Wheels or a food delivery service out. Um, And some organisations then were reliant on volunteers over 65. So that added an additional challenge. So the community sector responded, you know, by pivoting and then some organisations sprung up to address the need in their community. So if you remember, the government had a community call initiative, and that was very effective in terms of engaging local development companies to try and bring the charities in certain areas together and say right how can we support so there was massive pivot on the charity side to get out to people in their homes rather than bring people in and then on the supply side there was a very spiky couple of years where you'd have massive volumes or you'd have um small you know a a reduction in volumes
2: so then where has everything gone now as a result of all of that what sort of position have you returned to or is there a new hybrid model
1: yeah, so I suppose in terms of the food in, it's more stable, um, and interestingly, um, the number of donors that we have on a weekly basis through the warehouses has actually stayed high. So what, what would have happened was a food company might have reached out to us with a crisis, but now that things have gone back to normal, they've they've realised how easy it is to work with us, for example, um, and have stayed donating. So we have about 50 individual donors every week from, you know, uh, Brady's Family Ham to the distribution centre of a retailer to Foods of Athenrae in Galway, you know, all kinds of organisations working with us and on the charity side um, some of the charities haven't opened back up um, they just may they still haven't fully got back into their services and other charities have expanded their services as a result so we do surveys with the charities every couple of weeks and um, the latest survey has said that the charities that we're working have noticed a 50% increase in the demand for their services um, but mostly due to the cost of living crisis now. So things have stabilised, but it's not gone back to normal, if you like. It's just gone to the next crisis, which is the cost of living one.
2: We've had a number of entrepreneurs on this podcast since we started it. And nearly all of them have, no matter how enthusiastic they are about the product or service that they offer, how committed they are to it, evangelic in some cases, they are looking eventually to almost like an exit where they actually look to sell it and to make money out of it. So what's your long term goal and ambition? Because you're not building something here to make yourselves personally rich.
0: Yeah, to solve food waste. (laughs) Well, Like, honestly, it's um, you know, it is a different um, way of thinking but for us this is a huge problem and there's nothing that and i think i can speak for both of us like either of us would rather work on than the problem of our generation which is the climate crisis we see food waste as being a massive contributor that needs to be solved and that so many of us have a role in solving that and if we can have an impact by directly preventing food from going to waste in terms of our solutions, but also to inspire people to stop wasting food in their home, to find different solutions around it. And we can ultimately have a contribution towards our progress in tackling the climate crisis. You know, for us, that is where we are happy to be and our motivation as well can come from all of the amazing people that we work with you know they're like not our own team who are inspiring and motivating but also all of the community organizations all of the partners that we have you know we're all ultimately working towards a shared goal and that goal is an incredibly important goal for our future so I think that is where our motivation comes from.
2: But you talk about your generation and the crisis that's facing you with climate change. I mean, how seriously do you think people of my generation and older generations actually take these issues? I mean, are we really active enough in trying to deal with it? Or are we just paying lip service
1: to um, what other people want? Well, I I thought it was interesting. You mentioned that UCC conference that um, we, I was also at. Um, And the big difference was that I suppose three years ago, pre-COVID, a lot of those conferences with sustainability were the sustainability people and not the CEOs of companies talking about this as a major theme for their, a major issue for their businesses. So there has been a serious shift in terms of, it's not just the sustainability people who are sitting, you know, not necessarily the CEOs of the organization. So that's a big shift. In terms of taking action, I don't think any of us are taking as much action as we should be. Given the scale of the crisis, um, so to answer your question, I don't think any, we're not, we're not moving fast enough. We're not taking this, the hard decisions quickly enough. We should be doing more across government and industry.
2: Well, that's just what I just want to ask you because it has struck me: where is the initiative really coming from? Is it coming from government action or is it coming from industry? Because you often hear a lot of criticism that business doesn't want to do these things. And yet, from what I'm seeing an awful lot of the time, business can be actually faster than government and actually bringing about change.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, we've seen it in terms of the partnerships we've had, you know, that they're, they're all of the businesses we work see this as a problem and they want solutions. Um, but the reality with the climate crisis is that we all have to be working very fast and we are going to have massive changes over the next you know 10-20 years in terms of how we live our lives so food the industry the food industry in our case can have to start thinking and talking and taking action but the government have to do it as well and us as consumers have to so it's not one like I suppose we all have to work together one thing about what also inspires us is that, you know, you're working with food industries, you're working with communities and you're all working together to try and solve a part of this problem. But ultimately, that's what it's going to take, those partnerships. Um, And I suppose in terms of the food, particularly the food issue, where we would really like to see more support is kind of the community action. So we all are going to have to change everything. You know, the way we live our lives is going to have to change, but we have to make sure not to leave people behind. And, you know, with the charities we're working with across the country. You know, I'm just thinking of a couple of people who are going to, you know, working in family resource centres, community centres. They're going to be the ones that are going to make sure to, that the people who are going to be at most at risk of being left behind are supported. So, like, there's global issues that we all have to take action. But what I'd really love the government to see is making sure that at a community level there's a mo- enough support there and funding there for a just transition to make sure nobody's left behind. But I think everybody has to work together. There's no easy solution. So the government have to make hard decisions and the industry have to step up as well.
2: To finish, almost going back to where we started, does there also need to be change in an end of overproduction of food? I mean, is that an issue that all around the world, perhaps too much food is being actually manufactured is the wrong word, but growing and provided given the actual need that's there.
0: To be honest, um, it's you, you're looking for a simple answer and one doesn't exist. You're talking about a highly complex, highly global food system. We need multiple solutions. Ultimately, if there is an overproduction because there's too much food, um, you know, there's food going to waste, yes of course we should be producing less food but you can't say that when at the same time right now there are people who don't have enough food you know it's the same challenge you know we don't pay enough for our food but then at the same time there are people who can't afford the good fresh vegetables and fruit so it's too simplistic to come up with one answer for any of these problems especially when it's related to food and especially when food is such an essential part of our lives There isn't an easy answer and that's the hard part. That's why we need partners. That's why we need government. That's why we need everybody understanding this better and taking action.
2: Thank you to both of you for joining us on the Magnified with Matt Cooper podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.
2: And that was the latest episode of Magnified with Matt Cooper, which, of course, is a podcast series designed to have lengthier interviews with my subjects. It's sponsored by MG, the family car manufacturer that delivers more and wants to highlight the product quality and advanced technology the brand has on offer. More tech and features as standards not extra. And of course, there's a whole range of previous podcasts available to you. If you've liked this one, there's a lot of terrific other guests that you can hear. And wherever it is you get your podcasts, the Magnified with Matt Cooper series has lots more there for you to enjoy. Until the next time, thank you for joining us.
0: Magnified with Matt Cooper sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive
1: at mg.ie and recharge your soul.